Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page. If you have your Bible with you, you ought to be turning to the fifth chapter of the book of Ephesians. And while you're finding your place there, a couple of things just to give you a heads up. If you have any coins at home, uh, bring them next week and dunk them, dump them in here because we're going to take this pile of coins to uh, uh, the bank uh, next week because on the 9th, weather permitting, the 9th, 10th, 11th, and 12th, the, the parking lot will be repaired. That's the dates that they have set apart. And so I thought I'd let you know that. <clears throat> That's, you know, if it doesn't rain and all that kind of good stuff. Before we start this um, uh, fifth chapter, I think it's important that we take a few minutes and explain what it was like to live in Ephesus at the time the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the church there in the town of Ephesus. Ephesus was a major tra trade center. It was on major highways, and it, was, and it had access to a river port that all the ocean-going vessels could, could navigate up to the city of Ephesus. But the most obvious thing that you would see, and we've been there several times, that you would see if you were there was what was referred to as one of the uh, seven wonders of the ancient world. It was the temple of the goddess Diana. We've mentioned it before. It was on the Acropolis. Now that's a fancy word for saying on the highest hill that, that you could see from the city. And unlike what we see in churches today, the, it was the dominant influence in the whole city in many different ways. It wasn't just a place that you would go to once in a while and offer a sacrifice to the goddess Diana, who was essentially a, a sex goddess. That came from fertility, from the fields, and then ultimately became just a thing to make a lot of money because on any given evening, a thousand, up to 2,000 male and female prostitutes would leave the housing areas up around the temple and go down into the streets and sell themselves to raise money for the, for the temple and the people who cared for the temple the priests and the priestesses who cared for the temple. Now, instead of thinking of it just as a place to go occasionally, even though it was that, and it was a gigantic building filled with a lot of big columns, and it was also, because of the money that was raised, it was also the bank for the city. The city was also an academic center because it had the second largest library in the ancient world. Alexandria had the largest. It was a city where sailors came in by the thousands 
trade coming a trade from across in the uh, Mediterranean in Egypt because those grain loads tons and tons and tons of grain was shipped from Egypt into Rome, Corinth, Ephesus, those port cities. But more than just a place that was pretty and rich and noticeable, it was so popular that wealthy people would at times bring gold and silver images of themselves and set there so when people come by it would say, you know, here's an image of Scott Rawlings, blah, 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 made out of silver and gold or whatever. And so, and, and that stuff was kept in the bank and, and also put out for people to see when they came by. But it was also the same thing as the theater. They put on great big just gigantic productions and the city would see them and they would before those productions would go on there in the temple they would bring they would have parades through the streets looking at some of the actors and actresses and and because idol worship is essentially legitimizing the lower instincts of a man because all of them were all the idols were created the fancy word is they've been anthropomorphized that's where you and that which means in 10 cents to northern kentucky language it was it was after anthropos is the greek word for man and so and so when you study anthropology you study the history of mankind so what they did is, is they would take an image of Zeus, who would be an image of a man, because mo- most of the images were female, but there were some like Mars and Mercury and uh, Zeus and that were, that were male images. Or if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you have both their um, male and female, the Baal and the, and the Astaroth, male and female. And they were fertility gods that people would offer to, asking that their crops would grow. And in conjunction with that, what they would do is it was a a great honor for a family to take their daughter and present that daughter to to the priests of the goddess Diana to become a sacred prostitute. Now this may curl some of your hair. But the whole idea that the church has, that the church adopted from paganism was the idea of presenting your daughter to be a nun or your husband to be a, or your son to be a priest. Because in the early church, there was no such thing as either. These were adopted. And nearly all of these idols had an image. Now, you guys are familiar with that, whether you know it or not. If you watch television, any at all, you will see well, primarily insurance companies and, and uh, pharmacy companies because they got more money than God, advertising. And invariably what they do is they pick some kind of an animal as a logo for them. You know, one of them has this emu, and they don't even come on and talk about the insurance. They talk about Lemo emu, and he's a pecking on a window or something. So you see that all the time, and so they pick an image. 
And these idol worshipers did exactly the same thing. The temple people would develop, you know, because one of them's got this little green gecko. You, you, You know more about the gecko than you do the insurance. Because it is a good way of marketing. The beetle, believe it or not, was used as a marketing tool for one of them. This image, gold, this silver image of this goofy-looking woman uh, with either male testicles or female breasts hung all over was the marketing tool for the goddess Diana. And they sold them and made big bucks. If you would have gone down to Egypt, you would have seen the bull. Because calf worship was very, very big there, and that was the image of their gods. They had the Isis and the Osiris and so on and so forth. And th- but this was their image of those gods and goddesses. And, if, and you know this, even though you probably haven't thought about it. If you remember when the children, and this is in the 32nd chapter of the book of, uh, of Exodus, if you were to look that, read that chapter, it would probably, if there's a headline in your Bible, it would probably say the golden calf. Do you remember what took place? Because we showed you clips of it earlier, and I'm assuming you're here every week. Let that soak in. Anyway, we showed you a clip from the Ten Commandments of what Cecil D. Manil, whatever his name was, that made that film... Um, what he saw taking place as he interpreted that 32nd chapter of the book of, uh, of Exodus. And we've still got a clip of that. I think we've got it that we can play again because it gives you some idea of how people behave when they were so-called worshiping their sex goddess. Do we still have that up there? Yeah. Here we're at the foot of Mount Sinai, the, Mount, the, the peak of Mount Horeb. They gathered themselves together. Well, make a god for us. A god of gold. A golden calf! Korah shall be the high priest. Bring baskets, buckets, jaws, anything you have. Break off your earrings. Here, your bracelets, your necklaces. We will make of the golden calf. And the people sinned a great sin, for they had made them a god of gold. And they bore him upon their shoulders and rejoiced, saying, This be our god, O Israel. Are you mourners of Moses afraid to face the new god of gold? They were as children who had lost their faith. They were perverse and crooked and rebellious against God. They did eat the bread of wickedness and drank the wine of violence. And they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And the people cried, the graven image hath brought us joy. And they worshiped the golden calf and sacrificed unto it. What took place in the presence of these idols was Human beings were justified by their idols 
of following every lewd thought that comes into the thought comes into the mind of fallen mankind. And some of it was so bad that I couldn't describe it here for you. It's not fit for mixed company. It is so lewd. I don't know whether some of you remembered or not, but a few years ago, I got into a Royal American fight with our local fair board over them bringing in uh, a thing at the fairground and being paid like $50,000 for less than use of the fairground. And at the same time, that same outfit brought in prostitutes from Dayton, and we actually had films of what was going on there. There, there were sexual activities on the fenders of cars and everywhere else. And, and we had a press conference, and it was so bad that I only would allow the men to see it and the women to see it separately from the press. You turn a human being loose who is a product of the original sin, and he is so he and she are so selfishly oriented that every lewd thought they feel justified in carrying out. And you have some idea of what it was like to live in Ephesus at the time the Apostle Paul wrote. So the deal was, how do you get people who've been living that way to do what Jesus said and deny themselves and all of a sudden live in such a way that their very life honors the true and the living God. That's, the trans, that, that's what conversion meant. It's that drastic change from doing whatever you feel like doing, even though you're a product of, you're selfish and a product of fallen man. They viewed women as things for sexual activities. They, it was common in the Greek culture. For a man to have a wife to raise his children and have a mistress to having fun. And it was common. That was the way they lived. And so when you look at that life and then all of a sudden the Apostle Paul comes along and starts preaching that we need to turn to the God who created us. And here's the way he created us originally, the way we ought to be, and the way life is really meant to be, as opposed to what you're doing as you serve an idol that you created yourself to give you the license to do whatever you please. Now that's the struggle that the Apostle Paul was facing when he went first to Ephesus and he began to preach Jesus Christ. Now, we may not get very far with this text, but I'm going to read through it once and then we'll take a few of the, the high points that we need to emphasize that the Apostle Paul was having to deal with because people were asking questions. That's why he wrote the book to help answer the questions. He starts off by saying, Be imitators of the true and the living God. Now that you're a Christian, this is what you're to do. Most of our churches... And I did it for years. I can't point my finger at anybody other than myself. Thought that our primary thing was just to get people saved. And that is important. But God didn't save us so that we can say we're saved. 
God saved us and set us apart. The word hagios, we'll see in a minute. The Greek word means to be set apart for a particular purpose. And he's saying that we, he, when we, he chose us to come to, to be put in Christ, then we were set apart for a particular purpose. And we're going to see what that purpose is. So he says, be imitators of God. Therefore, as dearly beloved children, live a life of love. This is the word agape, not the word phileo. The word phileo means friendliness, and any old sinner can be friendly. Some of them are a lot more friendly than a lot of Christians. But this is the word agape, which means I'm willing to sacrifice in order to benefit my brother or sister in Christ. Just as Christ loved us, what did he do? He sacrificed himself on the cross in order to benefit you and me. And gave himself up for as a, freak, as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now then, he's getting ready to list some behaviors. And what he's doing is he's taking the behavior of the people who worship the goddess Diana and other idols, because there was a whole smear of them. You remember when Paul first went to Athens? There was a hillside called, and that whole hillside was coke, had all of these images of, of pagan gods. One of them said to the unknown God, and the apostle Paul said, that's one I want to talk about because he's the true and the living God. And so he introduced to them who God really was. So here's, here's what he says. But among you, now that you have been saved, among you must not be even a hint of sexual immorality. Why? Because the primary activity of the goddess Diana was lewd and horrible, sinful sexual activity. Or of any kind of impurity or greed. Because it was also, sex was the means for raising money. Like here in town, we have a lot of girls who are selling themselves in order to raise money to buy drugs. Because they're drug addicts. Here they were raising money to further the God of Diana. Because, they're, because he says, because these are improper for God's holy people. That word holy should have been translated, but it wasn't. And I still don't know why it wasn't. Because it should have been translated. Because holiness has a silly image among Christians. It so often means that the women, and it's always for the women, wear a dress that covers their ankles, hose that come up to their chin, and hair that piles up two foot above their hair, their head. And, and that's, that's holiness. I think it's ugliness, but I've never been asked to vote. He said, but the word holy means to be set apart for a purpose. And we'll see what that is, as I promised a few minutes ago. The word hagios, set apart. So he says, and then he mentions some other things. You are a set apart people for the purpose that God has enumerated for you. Because they're going to ask the question, now that we're a Christian, what's expected of us? And he's answering that before we get through here. 
nor should there be any obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse jesting. That's an important issue. Because too many Christians allow themselves to be, get involved in telling they want to be popular so they always have a joke that shouldn't be told. And you think you can do it because it really doesn't hurt anything and that's the way men talk to each other. But it does hurt a lot. And I'll explain that from a personal experience. Which are out of place, he said, but rather you should be filled with thanksgiving. How do you... How do you get to the place where you're filled with thanksgiving? These are questions they're asking. For this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person, because that's how you describe idolatry. Idolatry, an an idolater is an immoral, impure, and greedy person. And that any, anybody who falls into this category, whether you go to church or whether you don't, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. And don't let anybody deceive you because they're smooth talkers with empty words. For because of such things, God's wrath, and we need to talk once in a while about the wrath of God, which comes to those who are disobedient. And then he says something that's tough. He says, and don't even partnership with them. Don't have any fellowship with them. Be nice to them. Speak to them. But your fellowship should be with those who love the same Lord that you love. For he's going to say, what fellowship is there with light and darkness? For he says, for in the past, You were once darkness. You were once participating in this life of licentious living, serving a pagan god. Now, you are to be the light of the Lord. Now, this word light has an interesting history. Actually goes back to, in the most clearest, uh, the clearest place that it's illustrated would go back to the Old Testament when the children of Israel were being brought out by the Lord out of captivity in Egypt and headed for the promised land. And, and in, in the daytime, there was a cloud that covered them like an umbrella from the sun of the desert. And at night, there was the, the pillar of fire that warmed them that, that was there primarily to say, God is here and guiding you. And that pillar of fire that lit up everything that indicated the presence of God was called the Shekinah, which means the light of the Lord. He goes on to say, and you are that light now. You are the light that shows the world where to go and how to get there. It's you. So he says, so live like that light. So people will know who God is and how to get to him. You are that flashlight that guides people. For the fruit of the light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And then in verse 10, he says something we may or may not have time to get to. He says this, and it's the last thing on your outline. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do 
with the fruitless deeds of the past, darkness, but rather expose them. That's the one thing that a preacher is to do that people never like for him to do. They don't, I remember, I've always been accused of being a Republican uh, supporter of uh, pol- politicians. And then, at times, I plead guilty if I think that was the better of the two. But I can remember years ago when President, first President Bush was elected, and he was elected primarily because he looked the Americans straight in the face on television and said, read my lips, no new taxes. And he'd been in office some period of time, and he raised taxes. And the Republicans all wanted to rebaptize me in the Ohio River when I said, folks, our president just lied to us. But the Democrats soon forgot I said that. So it wasn't a political statement, it was a moral statement. And I don't back down from it, even though our job is to expose it, you will still get criticized for it. But it's still what we're supposed to do. For it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. That's the reason I said I can't really stand here before a mixed audience and some children present and describe what it was like to be a worshiper in the life of a person who was dedicated to the temple of the goddess Diana. Because even their productions were really nothing more than sexual orgies that the people got to participate in. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, for it is light that makes everything visible. This is why the scripture says, wake up, you guys that are asleep. Rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Okay, now we've gone through the text. Let's go back to the first little thing. It says, be imitators of God. This is an interesting word because it is this, this word in the Greek is a mu, which is the same in English as a neum. A yoda, which is the same as an I, because, and you all know that because you use that term a lot. I bet everyone here at one time or another has said, not one iota. That's the same as the Greek word yoda, which is a subscript, a little bitty thing underneath the letter, that for an I, because, and it, we say that because it's, it's the smallest of all the Greek wor- uh, letters. So you have the mu, the I, the mu, and then you have a long A. And then if you put a C at the end of it, you would have the word mimic. And this is, and this is the Greek word that's translated imitator. So he is saying mimic God. Well, then the question becomes, if we don't know him, how can we imitate him? And so it becomes necessary then for him to say, for him to tell them how they can know who God is so that they can imitate him in the life that they live. becomes interesting then when you start searching the scriptures. Because we go first of all, because if you look carefully down at verse 5, where it actually says, has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. 
What he's, what the Apostle Paul is saying, if you want to know who God is, what he looks like, what he believes, how he lives, you look at Jesus. And so the Apostle Paul preached Jesus because he was the reflection of, the direct image of, the incarnation of, which means becoming flesh, of the true and living God. And there are tons of Scripture to support it. Tons of it. For instance, the book of Colossians is probably one of the two or three that's clearest. In the first chapter, starting at verse 15, he says this, He, meaning Christ, is the image of the invisible God. You don't know what God the Father is? His very image is embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. And he didn't just quit there. Over in the ninth verse of the second chapter, he says this, For for in Christ all the fullness of deity lives bodily in him. In other words, he's saying that Christ is nothing more or nothing less than the living God with skin on. So if you want to know who this God is that you're to worship, since you have left a phony with a man-made image to one who created all of mankind and the place where he lives, since you, he is invisible, I'm going to give you something that is visible, and his name is Jesus. And that's the way he does it here, and I think it's very clear. Now, so the people in Ephesus are going to say, we've never seen Jesus. He's died and gone to heaven. So how do we know? Now, those are good questions, not meant to be difficult in dealing with, but needing to be answered. They were asking them because they genuinely wanted to know how they could live a life, and by the very living of that life, they reflected who God is to everybody who saw them, which is why we were set apart to start with. So, the Apostle Paul, in more than one instance, here in the fourth chapter of Philippians, verse 9, this is just the one of two or three I'll use. The Apostle Paul says, if you haven't seen Jesus, who have you seen? They said, we've seen you. Good enough. For whatever, he said in verse 9, chapter 4, book of Philippians, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice. And there will be a benefit from it. So what the Apostle Paul was saying is, this Jesus I'm talking about, I'm going to live... just the way he told me to live, to the extent that I can say to you people in Ephesus, for me to live in your presence and for you to see is Christ. 
For he is going, I'm going to follow him so closely and mimic him so completely that to see me is to see Christ. How many of us can say that? You want to know who God is? You watch me and you will see him, his character qualities, his attitude. You will see him in me. And that's what the Apostle Paul said. And he didn't quit there. If you go back to the full, see, the city of Corinth was every bit as bad, if not worse, than the city of Ephesus. For on the Acropolis, that high hill, there was the temple of Aphrodite, which is not a whit difference. If your name's Whit, I apologize. Not a bit different than the temple of the goddess Diana and the worship that took place there. They even copied off each other. But here in the fourth chapter, at verse uh, 16, here's the Apostle Paul talking to the church at Corinth who are asking the same questions. He says, Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. Because they were asking the same question. We've never seen this Jesus. And the Apostle Paul, you've seen me. And for me to live is Christ. And if you see me, you see Christ. I urge you, therefore, he said, to mimic me. Same word that he used to the Ephesians when he said, imitate or mimic God. And so it even gets clearer, I think, here in the 11th chapter of, of the book of 1 Corinthians, starting at verse 1, listen to what he says. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. What did Christ do? Christ mimicked his father. Paul mimicked Jesus. And you and I are to mimic Whoever embodies and lives out the life of Christ, as I've told you before, the, the objective, our objective as individual Christians ought to be to get to the place where from studying the Scripture, from praying on our knees, from loving one another, that we can say, for me to live is Christ. Nothing short of that is the goal that he sets. And we are, and we'll see this in a minute, to be goal-oriented. And what we have a tendency to stay away from is to say, what happens to those who don't? We like to, we, we, we're frightened to deal with that for some reason or other. But I need for you to know, and we need for everybody to know, what the Apostle Paul said in Hebrews 10.31, this, there was a sermon preached on the frontier by Jonathan Edwards using this as his text. Listen to what he says. Starting verse, starting verse, well, I'll start verse 30 and then read 31 and we'll dwell on that just for a second. For we know him who said, it is mine to avenge. That's talking about God himself. I will repay and again, the Lord will judge his people. 
And then he says this. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I don't know whether you've ever taken the time or not to in your imagination to think what it's going to be like, even though you're saved, to walk into the presence of Jesus Christ himself, and yet we all have to do it. Who will judge the living and the dead other than Christ himself? Because God has said, I have given judgment over to Christ. And he's going to say, how well have you represented me? You're going to say, man, you're setting the bar pretty high. No, no, I'm not. I'm just telling you where the bar has been set. So that you will know. Because in that same book of Ephesus, in in Ephesians, If you've been reading it, if you remember in the second chapter when we were there, in verse 3, he said this, All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. The wrath of God... It's so scary that most preachers and pulpits avoid it like the plague. Why? Because when you look at God's wrath as, as, as spelled out in Scripture, He punished people by disease, plagues, famines, and being in subjection to their enemies. And the enemy of the cross is none other than Satan himself. And so if you are by nature a child of wrath, you will be put under for eternity the dominance of the devil himself. And that ain't too good. But we better get it straight in our mind. That's that's exactly what the scripture is teaching. So it behooves us, it appears to me, that we should set out to figure out what pleases our God and set as our goal, try to do it. What pleases our God? For believe it or not, what we have said so far has already, should have already given you, if you're a thinker, a hint of what it's all about. What pleases our God? Well, let me put it this way before we tackle that and quit. The church today, I watched television this morning. I I listened to four different preachers. And three out of the four were essentially saying, What is God going to do for me? And only one of them went to the trouble to say, let me tell you what God has already done for you so that if you will count your blessings of what he has already done for you, you will be out of your mouth will not come filthy jokes but thanksgiving. 
for what He's already done for you. And He made the plan before creation was to send His Son into the world to live a perfect life as an example for us to follow and then be condemned to a cross in a damnable way to die on the cross to replace what you and I deserved. If you can picture yourself hanging on the cross instead of Jesus, you get the idea of what we deserve. All of us, because we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And having deserved that, Jesus said, move out of the way, boy, and let a man do it. And he went to the cross and bore in his body the penalty for sins that you and I committed. And God said that is sufficient to to get forgiveness for anyone who will accept you as my only begotten son, as your personal Savior. And then we don't stop there. Be careful, folks. Be careful. Listen with a great deal of care. True religion, true biblical, true biblical faith, always has mankind responding to what God has done, not God being asked to respond to what we want. Idolatry is asking God to do what we want. Because idolatry is the freeing up of man, sinful fallen man from the, from the original sin, fallen man to do whatever he feels like doing. And now watch out because here's what's happened in the church that you've got to watch out for. And that's that we have a tendency to say, to use our feelings to confirm whether it's true or false. Listen. I don't care what you feel. This is truth. And anyone who speaks down about it, anyone who tries to circumvent the fact that we should be the most grateful people on the face of the earth because of what God has already done. He's not, in the pro- he's not continuing to do what we want. And our feelings are... Not to be trusted. You're to trust God, not your feelings, because your feelings are fickle. You're a sinner like I am, and they can't be trusted. Don't even get involved in using filthy language or getting exposed to it. Now, here's what I told you I'd do, and I just got two minutes to do. Here's a personal experience. Here's the reason we shouldn't joke around about sexual things. I was 15 years old. Traveling with a bunch of guys who were older than I because I didn't drink and I could drive. And they took me, but I was driving, to Cincinnati up on 7th and Vine. There was a place there called the Gaiety. Of course, being naive and young, I didn't know what that was. That was a hoochie-coochie show. Now, some of you older guys know what that is. Now, I... My brother told me he'd been there before. He said, when you go in, hurry up and take a seat because if you don't, you're standing there looking, they'll ask you for an ID and they'll kick you out. So I took a dive for a seat. They told dirty jokes and they had sided I singing and it was all really pretty entertaining. And then all of a sudden, the real show began. And here comes a woman out and at the distance where I was, she had a pretty classy chassis 
And the only thing she had on was a boa around her neck to cover what everybody's looking to see. And I can even remember, get this now, this is 60 years ago, I can still remember the song she sung. Santa baby, hurry down the chimney tonight, you know. Now what I'm telling you, and the reason I tell you this, is because when we fiddle around with filthy stuff, it takes, it lodges its place in our mind, in our heart, and it has a lasting, negative, nasty effect. Even though at the time, it was fun. Because the flesh enjoys that kind of nonsense. Years later, after I moved to Portsmouth, Ohio, you know, the garden spot of the world, the place that had a guy named Four Pound Brown that would have qualified to work for the city of Ephesus because they ran a cat house down here somewhere. Bill Dawson comes on the radio at about 6 o'clock in the morning and says, Guys, eat your heart out. Rose LaRose died last night in Toledo, Ohio. Who do you suppose Rose LaRose was? Santa, baby, hurry down my chimney tonight. It made an indelible, I was a 15-year-old boy, and it made an indelible imprint on my mind that I can still see with clarity 60 years later. So don't tell me that it does no harm. It does. And the Satan then has a tool. And men and women both suffer from that. Well, the, it's my quitting time. But I'm going to tell you something, folks. There's really good preaching in this book. And you need to be reading it every day. It won't take much time for you to read through the book of, Ephes of Ephesians every day. And I hope that some of you here have begun to take those little daily devotionals and sit down with your family at a good supper meal that your wife has fixed for you or purchased at Kentucky Fried Chicken or somewhere and allowed you to sit together and to mull over for a few moments the things of God and to be grateful for the blessings that he's already given you through Christ Jesus. The starting place is always here. Are you a baptized believer in Jesus Christ? That's where you start. That's because that's the image of the new birth, the bursting of the water of the womb, the delivery of the... And you're then a child of God and a new creature in Christ Jesus. That's where you start. And if you haven't started there, you need to get that fixed. The people in Ephesus to whom the Apostle Paul was writing were baptized believers in Jesus Christ and now they were saying what's expected of me and the book is written to tell them so they'll know here's who your God is and here's how you show the world who he is by the life that you live next week Matthew continues along the same subject Lord dismiss us with a sense of your divine presence help us father this weekend to get some rest enjoy our families Make you a welcome guest wherever we are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You're free to go. 
Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page.